Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Good friend of mine, Dr. David Anderson, has made four different missionary trips to Haiti with missionary Walt Baker. Now, Walt has served there for 15 years. He was the only white man on the island who could preach in three languages, Creole, French, and English. And according to Walt, one of the voodoo practices in Haiti is the creation of zombies. When a person gets out of line in order to leave a message to others, the witch doctor will take a drug that's more potent than cocaine. It's called tetradotoxin. It's a drug that is actually taken from the puffer fish and it can cripple you. It can paralyze you. Extracted from the glands of the fish, it can be turned into a white powdery substance. And then what the witch doctors will do is they will watch where the person that is their target will put their hands. They watch very closely. And then the witch doctor will come along and just smear some of this drug on the places where the target often touches, knowing that he will get some of this drug eventually on his hands. Once a person touches the ingredients, it only takes a couple of hours before it puts the person who touched it into a drug-induced coma. So the person is now in a state of a trance, a deep coma. And the primitive medicine used on that much of that island, it can't tell if the person is actually alive or not. So when they don't detect a heartbeat, when they don't see any breathing, they hold a funeral for such a person in the coma. And they always place the bodies at funerals above the ground. And the practice that they have, it's kind of superstitious, but the practice that they have is to run from the burial grounds as fast as they can when the funeral's over, when the service is done. And then the witch doctor comes back in the night and brings the person out of the coma, knowing that the effects of the drugs only last for about 24 hours. And then what they do is they keep giving the person small, small doses of the drug, keeping a person in a trance-like state, keeping them as servants. And when people see the person that they thought was dead walking around, they freak out. They believe that the witch doctor has raised them from the dead and the people become afraid to do anything against the witch doctor. And these people are zombies. Now, it's hard to believe that this can go on in our day, but it does. And Walt Baker said that one man that he knew confirmed he could accurately remember his funeral service but could not remember the next 11 years of his life. A zombie walks around in a state of living death. Now, believe it or not, I believe this is where Paul takes us in Galatians chapter 3, because some of his converts to the faith had become Christian zombies. They were in a state of living death. That is actually the power of legalism. It takes people down the road of mindlessly going through life, following the rules of another person, not even aware of the life that they were given by Jesus Christ to live. 
It is the mindset of man that if we could just do enough, then God is going to somehow owe us. Then we will deserve something good from God. Now, if you've studied Galatians chapter 3, then you know from your own studies that Paul, he uses some strong words here in the text because the Galatian believers were living as if there was a spell cast on them. Find your way to the third chapter of Galatians where we begin with verse 1. Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. O foolish Galatians. Now this is a strong rebuke. Foolish, not because they were lacking intelligence, but foolish because they lacked the wisdom of Jesus Christ. Fools in Scripture are people who disregard the truth of God that has been revealed to us. Now, bewitched, it's an interesting term. It refers to witchcraft and magic. It is though the Galatians had a spell cast on them. What else could explain turning away from the grace of God and turning back to the legalistic rules of men? You see, I think Paul was upset at this point. Paul was upset because the Christians actually knew better. Paul was saying to these Galatian believers, I showed you. I showed you that Jesus Christ died for your sins. Christ paid the penalty for everything wrong that you did, but now you're behaving like you're under a spell by trying to keep a law, by trying to pay for your own sins. You're acting like you're underneath someone else's spell. So he says, who did this to you? Paul asks his first question. Who has bewitched you? Paul had explained Christ so clearly to them that he could say that before their eyes, Jesus Christ had been clearly portrayed before them as crucified. They had a vivid mental picture of what Christ has done for us. It was just as real to them as if they'd been standing at the foot of Golgotha. Paul's preaching to them about the crucifixion of Christ was as clear if it had been posted on a huge billboard on the side of the road. It's not something that they could miss at all. But the truth we are taught from the scriptures is that it does us no good if we don't take God's word home and apply it to our lives. See, Paul's putting it all out there. He's laying it all out there, telling these believers that they already knew of the death of Christ. They knew the significance. They knew that they were dead to the law. And so to turn from the law and go back to it again, even though you are dead to it, it just makes no sense. Jesus Christ crucified. The tense of the verb here, crucified, is perfect passive. Now, to a lot of us, that doesn't mean anything. But it means a past action with a continuing effect. You see, Christ had been crucified, but Paul had explained the significance. And these Christians were just like so many of us today. They missed the ongoing benefits of the crucifixion of Christ. That the mercy and love of Christ displayed on the cross, it continues to affect every single believer in Jesus Christ every day of his or her life. In other words, what I'm telling you is this. This is where the rubber meets the road for the Christian. Saved by grace through faith, but then what happens? Life gets hard. Or maybe you sin. Maybe you fail in how you live your life for Christ. So let me ask you this. What do you do in your life at that point? What do you do? 
Do you run from God and try to clean yourself up before you come back to your relationship with God? Or when you fail in your own life, do you sin and then life gets hard and instead of running, you run toward him and his grace? Do you boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence, not because you have the ability to clean yourself up, but because you understand that the grace of God, you understand that Christ has already put your sins up on the cross. He's taken care of it. He's paid for them. You see, I think that is when we compromise. And just to be honest, we are most offensive to God when we come to him with all of our own efforts. When we're still trying, even as believers, to earn what has been freely given, this is to reject God's amazing grace. You see, people run down this road in their life, I believe, when they fail to learn to put the passage, each and every passage of Scripture, in its proper context. And what was happening here in Galatians is people get confused. Even today this happens. They get confused about the role of the nation of Israel and the church. People get confused with how the Mosaic law relates to the church. And let's just back up and review for a second. When we study the word of God, we need to look at the scope and the purpose of each and every book. We find out who is being addressed. We find out the circumstances of why a passage was written. We look at the culture. We look at the history. We look at the geography. We look at the rules of grammar. I hate grammar with a passion, but we look at the rules of grammar because God spoke to man using words. And we look for his intended meaning, not what we want to think it feels like it's saying today. We look for God's intended meaning. And we even look at the dispensation of when a text was written. Oh, you can't say that, Mark. It just simply means this. God has interacted in different ways at different times with men, not for salvation. It has always been by grace through faith. But I'm not being told to live in a garden like Adam and Eve. And I'm not being told to build a boat like Noah. Although, Angie, if you'd like to get a boat so I could go fishing, I'm okay with that. And I'm not being told to live under the law like Moses in Israel. Because the church is not Israel, and Israel is not the church. Israel is a nation, a country with its own destiny. The church isn't a nation. When we study the scriptures, we have to look at whether the text is actually talking about our justification, which is our salvation, or our sanctification, how we grow in Christ, or our glorification, our future with Christ. And if you ignore any of these things, I'm sorry, but you're going to get it wrong. You're going to get it wrong. You're going to end up distorting the teaching of the word of God. Sure, people can quote scriptures. I'm sure the legalists could. And they can build strong straw man arguments trying to justify your point of view, but it doesn't make it right. And this is exactly what the legalists of Galatians had done. They had confused the law, the, the laws of Moses, with the age of grace under which the church now lives. And they led people astray. Walter McMillan he was convicted of killing 18-year-old Rhonda Morrison at a dry cleaner in Monroeville, Alabama back in 1986. Now, there were three witnesses who testified against him. Three white witnesses testified against him. 
But six witnesses testified, six witnesses, by the way, who were black, testified that he was at a church fish fry at the time of the crime, and there's no way that he could have done it. But racism still happens, and so he was found guilty, and he was held on death row for six years, all the while he continued to claim his innocence. An attorney named Brian Stevenson came along, and he decided to take on the case to defend McMillan after he'd already been convicted. Stevenson told a reporter, he said it was a pretty clear situation where everyone just wanted to forget about this man. Let him get executed so everybody could move on. There was a lot of passion in the community, a lot of anger because Rhonda Morrison had been killed. People didn't like someone coming in and fighting for the condemned person who had already been accused and convicted in a court of law. But with Brian's representation, McMillan was exonerated in 1993 and eventually freed but not without the knowing, the scars firsthand of being on death row. And one of those scars was early onset dementia. You see, the doctors actually testified and believed that the dementia was trauma-induced. It was the damage that was done to him by nearly being killed on death row because he witnessed eight executions when he was there. One after another, he saw the people he knew on death row being taken off to their death. And even after McMillan was free from death row, free from prison, an exonerated man, in his mind, he was still trapped. In his mind, he was still a prisoner. And when Stevenson would visit him in the hospital, even though he was free, McMillan was still telling his lawyer, you have to get me off death row. I think this is what happens to believers. We forget that we have been set free. We forget that we have been liberated by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we go back to the mindset that we had before we knew any better from the word of God, that we tried to do something to liberate ourselves from the bondage of sin. But it didn't work before, and it's not going to work now. Verse 2. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Paul is showing and testifying that faith alone is God's way of dealing with people. That's how God deals with people. And so he asks four more questions. This is the first one. And the obvious answer is that we receive the Holy Spirit by hearing the gospel of Christ and by trusting it. By faith, not by trying to keep the law. Now, faith is just simply trust. It's not doing. It's not doing at all. It's not committing to doing and saying, I'm going to do something. It is recognizing that it is impossible for us to be reconciled to holy and righteous God on our own. Listen to this. Faith begins when our abilities end. The moment we trusted Christ, the Holy Spirit came to live within each and every one of us. That's how we got started in the Christian life. We began with a simple faith in Christ who loved us and died for us, and you don't get the Spirit of God by works. If the legalists that were plaguing these Galatian churches were right, then none of these believers were indwelt by the Spirit of God. But I want you to notice, because this impacts us today with all sorts of doctrines that are out there, I want you to notice what else this verse teaches. Receiving the Spirit of God is not something that takes place after you are converted. 
The Holy Spirit indwells the believer at the very moment of saving faith, or as Paul puts it, hearing of faith. The faith that brings justification also brings the indwelling presence of the Spirit. It takes place at regeneration when a sinner is born into the family of God. Many of you know John 1.12. It's a great verse. You should memorize this verse. Let's read it. It says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. And then we read another key verse over in Galatians 4.6, where it says, And because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out what? Abba, Father. Today, there is no group of Christians who do not have the Spirit of God. Do you hear me on that? Because that's important. There is no group of Christians who do not have the Spirit of God. Paul would as much say this in Romans 8 when he says, Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's what? Not his. Spirit of God regenerates and comes in response when the person hearing the gospel of Christ has faith. And I would say this, I would say we don't do diligence in the church today talking about the Spirit of God because I would say receiving the Spirit of God is one of the highest honors any person can experience in their life. The Spirit of God, Spirit of God in our life is a gift we received when we believe the gospel of Christ. And so for these believers in the Galatian churches to shift, to follow the law after salvation, it stood against everything that Paul had taught them. So now he's telling them again, long before the Galatians could even think of meeting God's standard, God had accepted them by faith. It has to be by faith. It has to be by grace and the power of the Spirit because we could never do it on our own. The law of biogenesis states that there can be no life without antecedent life. The renowned scientist Louis Pasteur, he demonstrated this truth back in his day. He held up a a sterilized and sealed flask before his audience, and he said, it's devoid of life. I can keep it for a 100 years, and it will still be devoid of life. And then he continued on and said, I can beg and plead with it to produce a life form, even the humblest of life forms, but it remains unmoved by my pleas. There is no life without antecedent life because only life can beget life. And you see, that was the problem with the law. That was the problem. It could never produce spiritual life. Do you remember what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, 6? He said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. It is the law of biogenesis lifted to the spiritual plane. There can be no life without antecedent life. The law could not give life. It could only point to a standard that God would accept, but we are incapable of meeting in the flesh. We needed the Spirit of God to give us life. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of life in Romans 8.2. Only the Spirit of God can impart life to the soul. He can only be received by faith. But what about their sanctification? Paul addresses this in verse 3. He says, are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? It seems that what had happened 
that the legalists had come along, not claiming to directly contradict Paul, but giving the rest of the message, so to speak, as to bring these converts to perfection. And I think Paul was just honestly baffled at how immature in doctrine they had become. Flesh here, metaphorically referring to the sin nature. And Paul is saying, did you plan to start one way and then finish another? It's not grace plus needed works. If the legalist had his way, instead of Jesus paid it all, we would be saying Jesus paid a lot, but a lot is left to be paid. Since the bill is infinite, I will work till judgment day. But that is the trap the Galatian believers had fallen into. They tried for perfection by works. And I would say that this trap has been around for thousands and thousands of years. Believers thinking that they are justified by faith, but somehow they're going to move on and mature by works. End like you started by trusting Christ with your life. Find full and complete maturity through dependence on Jesus Christ. We end like we started, by faith, by depending on the Lord. We don't depend on ourselves. Maturity in Christ comes as we let Christ live his life through us. This we looked at last week, by the power of the Spirit that he gave to each and every one of us. Some of us were talking last week after the service. It was a great conversation of what this looks like in your life, what it looks like for the believer to let Christ live his life through us. And I've been thinking on that all week. And part of that is dying to our will, isn't it? It's surrendering to his will. It is to die to self. It is to set our mind on the things of Christ. It is to live for his purpose, his glory, and let his spirit, his Holy Spirit, govern our lives instead of our sin nature. Let the Spirit of God direct your life. Let him develop your life in Christ and your growth in Christ. You know, Romans 8.29 teaches us that someday we're going to be like God the Son. And that may seem impossible. That seems like so far off, so far away from where we're at now. But remember what God has promised in Philippians 1.6, where he says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. This is where we live by faith. That is where we trust God the Spirit as He leads us through life. Now, God has got some tough workouts planned for us. It's not always comfortable when we go through those workouts. There's going to be some days where we hurt from the training, but we can know that the Spirit of God is working to make us more and more and more like God the Son. So trust the Lord to complete His work in you. A sinner receives the righteousness of God by faith. And the believer lives out his or her life by faith. It all comes back to faith. Now, we couldn't make ourselves accepted to God on our own. So what makes us think that we can transform ourselves into the image of Christ apart from the work of God by faith? Paul is telling the churches here, do you honestly think that keeping the Mosaic laws is going to somehow help the Holy Spirit along in our sanctification process? In other words, why would you trade freedom in Christ for slavery to tradition? 
It would be like getting on an airplane and entrusting your entire life to a jet aircraft, but still insist while you're in the back row of the plane on flapping your arms to help the plane along to stay in the air. It makes no sense, does it? You've started your Christian life by the power of the Spirit, and so you should grow by the Spirit's power. A train rumbles into the station with a warning bell and the doors open up. The conductor steps out and you climb on board and you find your way to your seat. And when you look around the train car, you see tickets being clipped on the top of occupied seats, paid for with hard-earned money. And those tickets are the concern of the conductor who walks through the car to punch the tickets and confirm that you paid for the right to take this ride. If the conductor finds you with a ticket, you will either pay up right then and there on the spot or be escorted off the train at the next stop. And so to ride this train, what matters is the paid ticket. This is righteousness by works. But righteousness by grace works in a completely different way. God's train pulls into the station. The warning bell goes off. Ding, ding, ding. The doors open. The conductor steps out. A whole bunch of people crowd on board the train and find their way to their seats aboard the train to the city where people never die. And eventually, the conductor walks through the train to see if everyone belongs on board. But this train conductor is not looking for tickets clipped to the top of the seats that have been paid for because you cannot earn the right to be on this train. What the conductor is looking for as he walks seat by seat through the train car is the penniless people he knows by name, the people who are his friends who completely lack any and every means to pay. You see, these poverty-stricken people climb on board with only one hope. They believed in the generosity of their conductor friend. This is righteousness by grace. A ride on God's train is a gift. And once you are on this train, why would you insult the conductor by trying to pay your own way? All you can do at this point is live your life by grace and express your thanks to the one who bought your way. Verse 4. Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Paul is reminding the believers to live right now, trusting the Lord to help you grow through the suffering. When we live a life of faith, sometimes we suffer for it. Maybe our old friends don't always appreciate the changes that are taking place in our life when we start standing for Jesus Christ. Or sometimes non-believers can make life difficult for us. And that's what was happening to these Galatian Christians. When they first came to faith in Christ, some of the Jewish leaders certainly didn't like the fact that Paul and Barnabas were getting the big crowds when they preached. We saw this in the book of Acts. It made the Jews jealous. It made them angry. So what did they try to do? They tried to stone Paul and Barnabas, and they lied about the Galatian believers. And when Paul and Barnabas made their way back through these cities at the end of their first missionary journey, they warned the Galatian Christians. They said this in Acts, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Paul is telling the Christians here in Galatians, don't give up the fight just yet. Don't stop trusting the Lord even when you're in pain. Keep on living your life by faith in Christ. Otherwise, all your suffering for Christ could be a waste. 
When it gets hard, that's not the time to stop trusting Jesus Christ. That's not the way to live our life with the Spirit of God. That's when you actually need to double down and trust Him more. At Pisidian Antioch, when Paul and Barnabas were there, it was verbal abuse and forced expulsion from the city. But yet in Acts 13.52, it teaches us something interesting. It says the disciples, even though this was going on, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. At Iconium, the believers were being threatened. And Acts 14 tells us that Paul was stoned so badly, so severely, that he was dragged out of the city as a dead man. As a dead man. And if the legalists were right, there was no point in suffering for the faith. Let me say it another way. If the Jewish legalists were right, and the Galatian Christians were somehow not perfected before God without circumcision then why did the unbelieving Jews and Gentiles persecute them? Why was that going on? See, persecution teaches us something. It can, it doesn't always, but it can indicate opposition to God. So when you're persecuted for your faith, it's not just you that is being persecuted, it's hatred for God himself. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 15, 19? He said, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is why Christians suffer persecution. The world is at war with God. And when they see the presence of Jesus Christ in the lives of, of, of believers, it makes them angry. And if the legalists were right, and these Galatians were still unsaved because they needed to be circumcised or follow all those laws from the Old Testament, then the question remains, why did they suffer? Then their persecution was in vain. It had no point. Why would you suffer for the message of faith? Why would you suffer so much for the message of grace only to turn back to works? But Paul knew different. He had led them to Jesus Christ. He knew that they needed correction, not salvation. And his confidence in them, I believe, can be seen in the words he tacks on the end of verse 4, if indeed it was in vain. It wasn't in vain, and he didn't expect that it would be. Their suffering was not without purpose. You know, sometimes this is one of the hardest lessons, I believe, in the Christian faith to learn. When the excitement of becoming a new believer wears down, or the excitement of ministry wears down, it's hard to learn that the Holy Spirit continues to give us great power to live for God even when we're bored or a lot of ministry isn't taking place. And sometimes His greatest work is teaching us to press on, press on in our faith, even when it's hard, even when we don't feel like it. Paul continues in verse 5 in our text by saying, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now, right away, the question that is often asked as people study this verse, they say, what, what miracles, Paul? What are we talking about here? I believe the references to Acts chapter 14, where we read of the first missionary journey to the Galatians, it says in Acts 14, Therefore they stayed there for a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And then later on, we learn in Acts 14, we read that at Lystra, Paul healed a man who had been crippled since birth. 
The signs were done through the apostle to authenticate the message of the gospel. This had been just six months, only six months before this letter from Paul. And Paul is again saying, keep on believing through the times of pain because God the Father abundantly supplies his spirit to those who believe. Now, the obvious answer to the question from Paul is that God supplies his people, his spirit, by hearing with faith, not by works of the law. When we heard the gospel and believed it, God supplied us his spirit. The Greek word here for supplies is pretty interesting. It means to give generously. But the word was used in Bible days to describe someone who paid for an entire course to provide background music in a play. To do such a thing was very expensive. It would be like hiring the entire Chicago Symphony Orchestra instead of some local DJ to provide music for your wedding. That's what Paul is saying. That's how God supplies his spirit to those who believe. This reminds me of the advice Dr. Alexander Graham Bell gave to the parents of Helen Keller. They said that she needed a teacher, and they sent for a teacher from the Perkins Institution for the Blind. Ann Sullivan came along, and she was chosen for the task of instructing six-year-old Helen, who was both deaf and blind. If you know your history, it was the beginning of a close and lifelong friendship between the two of them. By means of a manual alphabet, Anne had to spell into Helen's hand words such as doll or puppy. Two years later, Helen was reading and writing Braille. And at age 10, Helen learned different sounds by placing her fingers on her teacher's throat in order to feel the vibrations. Later on, Helen went to Radcliffe College where Anne spelled the lectures into Helen's hand. And after college, Helen continued on. She wrote books and she wrote articles and traveled around the world making speeches, all because she wanted to help other people who were blind and deaf. And Anne often continued to translate these speeches and books and articles for her. Their nearly 50 years of friendship and companionship ended when Anne died in 1936. And when Helen then wrote these words about her lifelong friend. Listen to what she said. She said, my teacher, my teacher is so near to me that I can scarcely think of myself apart from her. I feel that her being is inseparable from my own and that the footsteps of my life are in hers. All the best of me belongs to her. There is not a talent or an inspiration or a joy in me that has not been awakened by her loving touch. Boy, does that sound like the role of the Spirit of God in our life. That is how God supplies His Spirit to those who believe. The Spirit of God is our lifelong companion, our close friend, one who walks with us through every step of life. Because just like Helen Keller, spiritually without Jesus Christ, we are deaf, we are blind. But God's Spirit came in us when we trusted Christ. And He's still with us to help us live for the Savior. That itself is a miracle. All we need to do is continue to trust, continue to walk by faith, continue to live according to the scriptures. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, hard name to say, try saying that one on your way home from church. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a Russian name. It's a name actually many people know because he exposed back in the 70s, he wrote a lot about the gulag system of forced labor that was in Russia. 
He won the Nobel Prize for his work back in 1970. He was eventually kicked out of Russia for being a dissident in 1974. But what most people don't know about this guy is that he actually became a Christian through a Russian Jew who had also trusted Christ in a prison camp in Russia. But the suffering in the gulag continued for him and thousands of others like him. And as those days became weeks and weeks became months and months became years of that forced hard labor with no hope, Alexander found himself growing very, very, very discouraged at times. He said that he wondered where God was. He wondered where God was in the midst of all his suffering. And finally, one day, he was working out in the fields, and he decided, that's just enough. I can't do it anymore. Life was not worth continuing on. He thought he may as well just die. So he went over to the side of the field and sat down on a little wooden bench, and he put his head down and waited for a Russian soldier to come up. When one of the soldiers saw that a worker had his head down, what they would do back in that day in those camps is come up, give the worker one warning, only one warning, and then they would use the shovel to just bash in the back of their head. This was standard. This is what they did. Alexander waited for his death. He just sat there waiting for his own death. He was done. He sensed someone coming up behind him. He heard the footsteps. He knew it was coming. But instead of a soldier, he was surprised. It was, it was one of his fellow workers with a stick in his hand. He didn't say a word to Alexander, but he just came near to him. And with the stick, he drew a cross in the ground. And then he just walked away. Now, as Alexander stared at the rough cross scribbled in the earth, he started thinking about this, and his entire perspective changed. He knew he was just one man, one man against the entire Soviet empire. But at the same moment, he also knew that the hope of all mankind was represented in that cross. And through the power of God living in Alexander, he picked up his shovel and he just simply went back to work. And he wrote about it years later and inflamed the world for the message of freedom. My message to you this morning is never underestimate the power of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. Paul knew that when believers face the difficulties of life, the answer is always to remind them of what Christ accomplished for us. Because the cross, I believe, speaks to every condition of man. Are you fearful in your life? Do you have fear? Look to the cross and see a God who loved you so much that he sent his only begotten son, knowing that he will take care of you now. If he loved us enough to die for us, certainly we can trust him in the little things, even though we don't know his plan all the time. Do you stand guilty of sin? Look to the cross. Why? Because what can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Are you bitter? Look to the cross because the basis of forgiving other people is the immense debt forgiven us through the cross. And are you growing complacent in your faith? Look to the cross and you will find that a fire begins to burn in your bones as you see the one who gave his life in order that we might have a personal relationship with the living Lord. And are you tempted to sin? Remember what it cost our Savior on the cross to pay for our sin and that because of what he accomplished, we no longer have to give in to that sin nature because of Christ living in us, because of Jesus Christ living through us. And when I forget how much my God loves me, 
I look to the cross. This is the answer to our foolish thoughts of wandering away from God. Christ crucified, our living hope. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.